I'm not sure if you've ever been on a trip before that, that marked you for the rest of your life. Like you went somewhere and you experienced something and you carried that with you ever since. Um, but I had one of those experiences when I was in college. Uh, I traveled around the world to China and I spent uh, most of my summer there learning a new language, getting to know a new people and building friendships, praying that some of those would lead to opportunities to share about the hope that I had in Jesus Christ. I went to a section of China that most people don't go to. I went to the far uh, western side of China to this little little city, I guess it's little for China, three million people, um, called Urumqi. And it's in the Uyghur Autonomous Province. And, you know, I, I could tell plenty of stories about that, including I, I never saw greater racism than I saw there uh, as these nations and peoples were in conflict. And so I spent six weeks in this city. Um, but then I met a student there, our group did, and he said, I want you to come see my family. And so we said, hey, let's, let's go out and experience that. So we went to this bus station. We got there about 6 p.m. And we got on this sleeper bus. There were three rows of bunks. I got on early, so I got the top bunk, of course. And I got on the top bunk, and I laid down, and I buckled across my belly so I wouldn't fall out if I woke up in the middle of the night. And we were, you know, bouncing around on this road. And I laid down, and I fell asleep, and I woke up the next morning in this small town up here called Altai. And uh, that was the closest town to where we were going. And so I took the overnight bus to Altai. And um, Altai, if you notice, is right in between three nations. It's in between Mongolia, Russia, and Kazakhstan. It's way up in the mountains. So we got done. We had a breakfast, if you can call it breakfast. It wasn't very good. And, um, and I had stomach issues this whole trip. But that's a whole other story for another day when you haven't eaten food. Um, and we got on this Jeep, this old school Jeep. And there was three people in the front, a driver, two people in the passenger seat. There were five of us across the back bench. We were all holding the roll bar and holding on for dear life. And we spent nine hours in that Jeep that day. And we went 65 miles. So if you do math, that's seven miles an hour. It was basically like being on a mechanical bull with friends for, for nine hours <laughs> in an enclosed space. And so we're bouncing around, and my stomach is going up and down, and my breakfast is going up and down, and we get to, I guess, what the local equivalent of an Airbnb is, and uh, we had some more food that I didn't really care for, and so I was just feeling terrible. Like, I was exhausted physically, my body ached, my stomach was all over the place, and I asked where the bathroom was, and they said, well, it's across the field, it's the outhouse. Cool. So I walked out of the house uh, with my friend, and we're walking across this field, and it's dark, and I feel like I'm going to throw up, and it's just, it's a miserable, miserable thing. Like, what am I doing here? And where am I? And what is going I mean, I just was like miserable, and I was caught up in my own stuff, and I'm walking along, looking at my feet, and my friend elbows me, and he goes, stop, stop. I go, what? He goes, stop, don't move. And I'm like, is there somebody coming to kill us? Is there a wild animal going to come get us? Because we're literally in the middle of nowhere. And I go, what's going on? He's like, stop. I go, what? He goes, look up. And I'd never seen the stars that bright. Ever. I grew up in Las Vegas. We have our own lights. We don't look up at stars. And as I looked up, it was as if the stars had gone from my grandparents' 13-inch RCA TV with the wood paneling around it to 4K. I mean, it was just brilliant. 
my friend Sean and I, we just stood there for like what seemed like an hour, just staring at the stars. And suddenly the bus trip and the Jeep mechanical bowl and the, the food and my exhaustion just faded. We looked at each other and, and there was really nothing we could say. We were overwhelmed with awe and wonder. And it hit me that day that those stars were there that whole walk across the field. I would have never seen them if Sean hadn't been with me. I would have never looked up and I would have missed that moment. And I tell that story because I think for many of us, the experience I had there is a lot like the way many of you are experiencing life here. There are opportunities for wonder all around you. But you're just not seeing them. See, what I discovered that day is that we lose our wonder when we stop looking up. We lose our sense of wonder when we stop looking up. When our lives are consumed by the worries and cares and anxieties of our circumstances. When we're so caught up in our own current crisis. When we live from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. And our eyes are just down on everything we're going through. We never look up. We never stop. We never wonder. And a huge part of this series called Awakening Wonder is a challenge for us, for you, to step back and ask yourself, have I been looking down when I should have been looking up? Have I been so consumed with experiencing the Christmas season that I haven't looked up and experienced the one that Christmas is all about? Have I been so consumed with living my best life now that I haven't looked up to the one who wants to give me a better life now than I could ever achieve on my own? And we picked this graphic after a whole lot of work because it represented so much of what we were trying to communicate in this series. You see, at the center of this image is the manger where we're ultimately going to end up. But it begins in a much broader and wider place. Because we have to recognize that when we celebrate Christmas, we're not just celebrating that moment in the life of Jesus. We're celebrating that moment in light of all that Jesus is. And so this image of this glorious work of art pulled down into the manger helped us to communicate this idea of the wonder of what happens at Christmas. And this starry night behind it was a reminder for us that we're going to really lean into today. And what I find so interesting as I read the Bible is that you think about it, it didn't have to be the way that it was. It didn't have to be recorded the way that it was. Even with Jesus, we see Jesus from different perspectives. If you know the Bible, you know there's four books that give us the life and teaching of Jesus. There are almost four biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus, which many of us find really boring. It's just names and people. But Matthew has some significant things to tell us through it. Mark's gospel is the shortest, and his is kind of like an action movie. It's light on character development and big on explosions. 
Luke is the doctor. He's the academic. He makes sure all the details are right. And he begins with a very logical and methodical storytelling. But John starts his gospel in what I feel like is the most unique place. It's the most surprising place. And it's where we're going today. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you hit in the middle. That's Psalms, head towards the back. You hit Matthew, and then it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John chapter 1, unlike Matthew, who goes back to Abraham, and, and Luke, who goes to John the Baptist, John goes to creation. He goes back to the very, very beginning. And this is how John begins his story of Christmas and Jesus. Maddie, I'm going to ask you to take over there because my, my slides decided to take a Christmas break today. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Today, the central idea I want to share with you is this. That at Christmas, light began to defeat darkness. At Christmas, what begins that ultimately culminates in what we celebrate at Easter. What begins is that light began to defeat darkness. And John fleshes this out in the introduction to his biography and story of Jesus. And so today, I came to share with you four truths about Christmas and creation. Now, you might not naturally in your head connect Christmas and creation, but John does. It's the context through which he begins to introduce Jesus to us. And here's the first truth he shares with us, that Christmas makes the most sense in the context of creation. Christmas makes the most sense when you put it in the context of creation. He begins his work, John 1, 1, where he says this, In the beginning was the Word, which is his term for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This word that John uses here that we translate word is the Greek word logos. And it was a huge word in this day. You have to understand that John's stereotypical audience for his biography or gospel of Jesus were Greeks. In the same way that Mission Impossible 19, that hasn't come out yet but it's coming soon, is targeted at a different audience than a Hallmark Christmas movie. Each of these gospels is targeted to a different audience. And John's writing to a Greek audience who knows this word logos. And while it literally means message or word or saying, in their context, the Logos was this divine figure who took messages from the gods to the people. It was like Zeus's version of FedEx or UPS. I have a message for the people. I'm going to send Logos to send it. And what John does is he says, Logos actually has a name. And his name is Jesus. And he's much more than a divine delivery system. He is God. What you also need to know is that this this verse here, where he says, and the word was God, is a significant moment. If you have friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses, they translate this word differently. 
They translate it, in the beginning was the word, and the word was a God. Let's go back to one slide. One more. One more. Right here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, it says, and the word was a God. Which that A changes everything. If Jesus is a God and not the God, then the whole story is a different story. But John is being clear. He's saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So if you go ahead, two slides. There's really four things John's telling us here. He's saying, in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus is God. And Jesus was with God in the beginning. So when this story starts... He's, he's laying down in these two sentences these four huge theological statements. In the beginning, Jesus was there. Jesus was with God in the beginning, so we're seeing the establishment of, of the idea we call the Trinity, that God is one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is God. He's not a God, a, a smaller God like he is in Logos or like he becomes in the Jehovah's Witnesses' faith. And he was with God in the beginning. That's why Christmas makes the most sense in the context of creation. Because this baby that we're going to worship in the manger, what didn't appear in the manger, he appeared in creation. And he's responsible for everything we see. You even see it in the way that John writes. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Genesis 1.1, this is what Genesis 1.1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's almost a parallel in the way they're written. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse in the Bible. And the very first verse about Jesus is, in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. If you want to understand the context of Christmas, you have to understand the context of creation. Here's the second truth that we're going to share today. Creation reveals the wonders of Jesus. Creation reveals the wonders of Jesus. In verse 3, we read this. All things were made through him, that Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Creation doesn't just reveal the character of God the Father. It also reveals the wonders of Jesus. And this is why so many people you know, and maybe you, love to go out in creation. Because you feel close to God when you're in God's creation. Many of us have had moments, like I did with the stars, where you felt overwhelmed with who God was, or maybe you felt tremendously small in the face of creation, or maybe you went out in creation and you were filled with angst or stress or anxiety, and it just brought a great sense of peace to you. All throughout the Bible, we learn that creation reveals the character of God. In Romans 1.20, the Apostle Paul writes, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, so when we go out and we experience creation, it reveals to us the wonders of Jesus, his power and his divine attributes. Ever since the creation of the world, we've been experiencing who God is and the wonders of Jesus when we step into his creation. And there's some of us that still have wonder about that. Some of you who live here in Prescott, you're still you know, overwhelmed that you get to live here with this beauty. Others of us have been here for enough time that sometimes it's lost on us. Some of you have lived here for so long that it takes a friend coming to visit you and go, man, you live somewhere beautiful. And it's like, 
Yeah, I guess I do. You know, it, we forget it. And, and that sense of wonder is something that children have. And during the season, we're reminded through children what wonder looks like. And for some of you, this whole Awakening Wonder series has reminded you or revealed to you just how far you've gotten from that wonder you once had as a child. And our goal in this series is not to turn us all back into four-year-olds with how we see the world. Because you can't unsee what you've seen. And you can't unexperience what you've experienced. And the things that have marked you cannot be taken away. But we can sometimes recognize what wonder looks like through children. My wife and I have this, we'll call it a friendly conversation, back and forth, about Christmas decorations. And and my wife hates those inflatable things that people put up in front of their houses for Christmas. And um, so for years we didn't get them. And, uh, and last year, I was at Home Depot getting some stuff for the house, and my kids saw the inflatables from across the store. So we went over there, and, you know, they really wanted one that was like 10 feet high. It was like $125. I'm like, I'm not buying that. But I was weak. <laughs> and so I came home with two inflatables, and I stashed them in the back of the van where she wouldn't see them. And then she went out to get the rest of the stuff, and she goes, so, so you got some stuff. I'm like, it's better than what I could have bought, you know? And, uh, and then this year we were at a store and something else happened. And so now we have, we, have, we have three of these guys. And I stole them from my house this morning. My kids are like, Papa, are you bringing those home? I guess I'm bringing them home. So, so at my house, these three guys, I'll turn on in a second, they come on every night. And typically we get home, we pull in, and my kids fight over who's going to turn them on. They've been up for two weeks now, and we're still fighting every day. And so I go up to the house, and I push a button. And uh, these guys come to life. Typically, Olaf comes on first, and his arm is always broken. And then Dave, he kind of struggles, but he comes up second. And then this guy right here, Chase from Paw Patrol, he comes up third. He's kind of our laggard. And every night, it's like they've never seen him before. They all run in front of them, and then just with awe, like this little kid right here, they watch them come to life. And you're like, seriously? Every, like, every night. <laughs> this morning, they were watching them go down so that I could take them here. I mean, they're just, they're overwhelmed with wonder. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a quote from one of C.S. Lewis's contemporaries, a guy named G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, because they want things repeated and unchanged, they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) So true. But he's not done. He says, for grown-ups are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, he says, do it again to the moon. It may not be the automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. But he's never gotten tired of making them. Chesterton says, it may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. 
And so for me, whenever I drive around and I I see these silly inflatables, they A, make me think of my kids and the next one they're going to want to buy. And they remind me just how different I am from my Heavenly Father. Who for millennia, every morning and every night, has said, do it again. Who has not lost the wonder in the monotony. And this week, I stumbled on a video that gave me a little picture of that. There are these birds called starlings. They're amazing little birds. We, we know how they sing. We know how big they are. We know where they migrate and when they migrate. But one thing we have yet to discover about these starlings is how they can fly in flocks or murmurations without colliding with one another. And I got this video from National Geographic. I promise you it has not been altered. It's not been changed. This is a murmuration of birds. Watch the screen. That came from the imagination of God. That was an idea in the mind of Jesus before he spoke it into existence. Creation reveals the wonders of this baby that's born in a manger because he didn't start in a manger. He was there in the beginning with every ounce of creativity and imagination, creating things that still today leave us filled with awe and wonder. The third truth that I want to share with you today is that we connect with and run from Jesus in creation. We connect with and at the same time run from Jesus in creation. One of my favorite stories in the Bible to read is the story of Job. It's not an easy story. It's a, it's a pretty tough story. Job lost everything. Some of you have had a really tough year this year, and you might relate to Job. He, he lost his health. He lost his family. He lost his job. He lost his wealth. He lost his retirement program. And then he started having marriage problems. I mean, anything that could go wrong did. His friends showed up, and at first they made it better, and then they made it worse. And 37 chapters into his book, we don't hear anything from God. But God shows up in chapter 38, and he begins to speak to Job. And he says, who is it? Who is this that darkens by words my counsel without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. He goes on and says, who determines the measurements of the earth? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone, he says. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of the earth shouted for joy, have you commanded the morning since your days began? It's funny, God doesn't speak to Job and call him out in light of his holiness. He doesn't call him out in light of his sovereignty. What God does when trying to awaken wonder within Job is he goes to his role as creation. Mike Cosper remarks on this in his book on wonder. He says, how interesting that God, in correcting the ruminations of Job and his three advisors, he turned to his work as imagineer and maker rather than his holiness. Maybe the secret to reckoning with pain and sorrow isn't meaning-making and answer-seeking, but embracing mystery and cultivating wonder. 
You can turn, turn the lights back up a little bit. I want to see everybody today. And so these moments that we have where we look up at the stars while we're in the middle of our pain, there are moments in which we connect with God. Moments where we're reminded that, that sometimes our perspective has gotten off because we've lost sight of his beauty and awe and that wonder. But sometimes these moments, as we're present with God in creation, we run from them because we're scared. There are many of us that, that know that if we went out in nature for a couple hours, that experience of being in God's creation and leaning into his presence, that would reset things. But it also terrifies us. It also scares us. The French mathematician and physicist Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And the reason that we connect with and run from God in creation is that many of us are terrified. Of being quiet. Many of us are terrified of being still. Many of us do everything we can to keep the noise turned up in our lives so we don't have to deal with the emptiness that we feel. The lack of peace that we feel. The anxiety and the worry that we keep at bay with our phones and our noise. And if we were to step into creation and turn everything off, if we were quiet before God. Some of us are excited about what God might say. And some of us are terrified. And that's why God turns to Job and he says, where were you? Because he wants to restore the sense of awe and wonder Job has. And he will only get it when he realizes that God is bigger than he can ever imagine. And that's what the stars did for me that night in China. They overwhelmed me with a God that is way too big for me to control. That is way too big for me to comprehend. Last week when you walked in the room, we had translated the, the lobby into like a Narnian wonderland. And I love this story, the line which in the wardrobe. And I have a, a favorite line from that story. It involves the children asking about Aslan. And they ask if he's safe. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And part of the reason we run from God in creation is because the God that you meet in creation is anything but safe. He's anything that we can control. He is beyond that. And that child that, as Will Farrell said, that tiny, cute, six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus... He may look cute, but he will not be controlled. He may look cute, but he is beyond what you can comprehend. And then number four, the fourth truth today is this. That Jesus is the light. And he's pushing through our darkness to grab a hold of us. John ends this introduction to his gospel in verse five by saying this about Jesus. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light 
will become John's, one of his favorite words for Jesus all throughout his gospel. He records Jesus using this phrase about himself again and again, that I am the light of the world. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he describes what light is, and then he begins to contrast it with darkness. And the word that he uses for darkness is not just kind of your run-of-the-mill, like it's dark in that room. No, the word that he uses for darkness is this idea of foreboding, shadowy, evil darkness. Like you're walking somewhere downtown, and there's a dark alley, and you're like, I'm not going down that alley. Or you're at home at night, and nobody else is around, and you hear something go bump, and you don't know that sound, and it looks dark out there, and suddenly it's no longer dark, it's scary, it's that kind of darkness. And he says the light has shone in that kind of darkness, and that darkness, it has not overcome it. That word overcome is a Greek word, it's katalumbano. And it means to lay hold of or to seize or to overcome. And I, I sometimes don't bring Greek words out because I think there's some of you who, who struggle with this. But I want you to lean in here because I think there's something for us. This word catalambano doesn't just appear in John 1. And in the, but in John 1, what Jesus is saying through John is that I am the light of the world. And that, that light that I am, it shines in the darkness. And the darkness, let's go back one slide. The darkness has not been able to lay hold of it, to seize it, or overcome it. The darkness in our lives, in our world, tries to lay hold of, to seize, and overcome the light of Jesus. And John is saying the the darkness can't lay hold of, can't seize, or can't overcome it. Some of you this year felt the darkness try to lay hold of you. Maybe that's why you're in Prescott. Some of you experience the darkness trying to seize you through your battle for your own mental health with anxiety. Some of you experience the darkness try to overcome you as you took first steps of faith. And what he's saying here is that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness, next slide, cannot overcome it. But this word, catalambano, appears somewhere else in scripture. Our executive pastor, Clovis, he has a favorite verse. It's in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this, or I've become perfect. I haven't arrived, he says. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And where he says, made me his own, it's the word catalambano. And so Paul says, I press on to grab a hold of it. To overcome it, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's grabbed a hold of me. He's overcome me, in verse 13. He says, brothers, I have not made it my own yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, so what John is saying in John 1 about the light not being overcome by the darkness, but the light overcoming the darkness, Paul is saying that because God has overcome us, because God has taken hold of us, he's calling us to move forward and take a hold of him. And that idea is one that has just spoken to me in this season. Because I've had moments, even this week, where the darkness began to, to, to creep in. 
where I began to feel overwhelmed. And in those moments, my mind went back to that reminder that the light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And I learned that I'm sometimes more familiar with what it feels like living in darkness than I am what's living in light. So I'm going to ask our team to turn out all the lights in the house right now. For those of you watching online, we won't be dark forever. I'm asking to turn the lights off on me too. And for many of you, this darkness is all too familiar. As I read last week from Isaiah 9, that those who have walked in darkness, the passage says, have seen a great light. And so this week, every night, you're going to have an experience that eventually the sun is going to go down. And the darkness is going to come. And for some of you, it's something you're anxious about every night. And what I want you to do is each time you feel like the darkness is overcoming you and the darkness is overwhelming you, I want you to remember that Jesus overcame the darkness. And the reminder I want you to have is I want you to begin looking up. And as you look up, I want the stars above you to be your reminder that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That Christmas is the one time of year that we connect with a daily reminder that God has placed light in the sky that we might be reminded that the light shines and the darkness, it hasn't overcome it. They could bring the lights back up. I've got a couple next steps for you before you go today. The first one is this. This week, I want you to set aside at least 30 minutes to wonder at God's creation. I want you to carve out 30 minutes, and I want you to go out, and like you did with that video of the starlings, quietly wonder at creation. Can you take your phone because you're worried about falling off a cliff or something bad happening to you? Just put it on airplane mode, put it in your pocket. If you take a photo of the stars, it's going to look terrible anyway, so just enjoy the moment while you're there. If you say, Scott, it's really cold at night, go out during the day, go for a hike. But spend 30 minutes in creation. And don't just be there, wonder at it. Number two, while you're there, I want you to be present and pay attention. As we said last week, wonder is all around us, but we have to pay attention to it for it to become wonder. And so as you step out there, commit to be physically present, but be emotionally and spiritually present too and pay attention. When you came in last Sunday, we shared a quote from Wayne Dyer, who said, our present moment is a mystery that we are part of. Here and now is where the wonder of life lies hidden. And some of you are saying, Scott, my moment I'm living this season, my Christmas this year, doesn't have wonder. Yes, it does. Wonder is not a perfect moment in the future. Wonder is the moment you're living right now with God. Wonder isn't about your experience. It's about your perspective. So be present and pay attention. And then number three, talk to God about what you notice. While you're out there without your phone on, without talking to anybody else, talk to God about what you're seeing. Maybe that you've never seen before. Talk to God. Maybe come back and write down 
journal, as Pastor Clovis said a few weeks ago, your thoughts to God about what you noticed and what you'd experienced, but capture it. Take it down. I want to close today with a story. The story involves President Teddy Roosevelt. President Roosevelt was friends with a guy named William Beebe, who was a naturalist. He loved nature. And they would hang out at Sagamore Hill. They would have dinner. They would come out. They'd go for a walk at night. When they got outside, they would look at the stars. And they didn't have that cool, you know, iPhone app that you kind of move around. It shows you what stars are there. They just had to know the star map. They would go up and they would look for Pegasus. And near Pegasus is the spiral galaxy Andromeda. The Andromeda galaxy is the galaxy closest to our galaxy, the Milky Way. And they would go out for a walk. They would find Andromeda. And then this is what Roosevelt would say. He would say, this is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. Don't go ahead, It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. It is one of 100 million galaxies, and it consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And then he would say this. Now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. When we begin to feel small again, amidst the wonder and awe of the creation of Jesus, wonder can begin to rise again in us. And as you look at those stars this week, I want you to remember that at Christmas, light began to defeat darkness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.